This is the FASD Family Life Podcast, and I'm Robbie. I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also a parent of five amazing people, three of whom are teenagers with FASD. It's my passion to help families thrive because I've been in that place where I didn't thrive, where I was drowning, not understanding that FASD is a brain-based disability and that the confounding behaviors that my kids and I were experiencing were not intentional, but really a symptom of their disability. And when I began to learn that and implement brain-based parenting and accommodations that were unique to the needs of my kids, things really changed in our lives. I know the struggle is real and so is success. And that's why I started this podcast. This is episode one of season four of the FAC Family Life podcast. And I'm so happy to be here with you. Maybe you're out driving your kids to and from school and you're listening. Maybe you're running errands. Maybe you're singing at home. Maybe you've got me in your ear as you're walking or gardening. Whatever the case may be, I'm glad to be with you. I always invite you to join me for a hot cup of coffee and settle in for a conversation because, well, I love coffee. If you love this podcast, you can share some love with me. You can buy me a cup of coffee virtually by clicking the uh, link in the show notes. And that goes to buy me a coffee and you can send me $5 to help support the work I'm doing. The FASD Family Life Podcast is solely supported by listeners. So if you're liking the program, if you find value in this, I encourage you to support the show, go to the link and buy me a cup of coffee. In case you didn't catch the show last week, uh, I had a lively conversation with my special guest, Dr. Jacqueline Pye, and we talked about relational parenting and the profound impact of relationships on the lives of our loved ones with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Now, Dr. Jackie Pye isn't a parent of an individual with FASD, but I invited her to join me on Mom Talk because I know she truly gets it. Dr. Jacqueline Pye is the lead researcher for CAN FASD. That's the Canadian FASD Research Network. And she has over 75 peer-reviewed publications. And one of those is Toward Healthy Outcomes for Individuals with FASD. Dr. Jacqueline Pye has presented this work in a number of places, a number of conferences, and we refer to it in this podcast. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can check out that research yourself and employ the best practices in your professional life and in your personal life with your loved ones with FASD. This is September 2022. This is FASD Awareness Month. There's a lot going on. I'm sure you've heard all the buzz. I'm trying to create some buzz too. But sometimes I feel overwhelmed. I wonder if you do. Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. Like there's so many things that should be done, could be done, but there isn't enough time in the day. And and maybe you feel that way too. And I want to just give you a bit of advice that my sister gave me. It's called the goalie rule. And, and the goalie rule is just this. You know, over the course of your career as a goalie, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of pucks coming at you and you can't stop them all at once. All you can do is prepare for the puck that's right in front of you. Stop the puck that's coming at you right now. And I think I can use that analogy in terms of feeling the kind of the weight of FASD and the importance of getting the awareness out. And there's so much work to do. I feel it. Maybe you feel it. All I can do is address the puck that's right in front of me. All I can do is take the next right step. And that's the same for you too. You know, maybe you don't have a podcast. Maybe you weren't running um, a nonprofit. Maybe you weren't running support groups and, and you see other people are, hey, don't worry about that. You're called to do just what you need to do. And the most important thing you can do is take care of yourself and take care of your loved ones with FASD. That's job number one. The rest will come 
some other time. And we're not all called to do the same things. We all have different gifts and talents. I just want you to be encouraged that what you're doing is enough. This is the first episode of season four, and it isn't what I had planned. Sometimes things don't go according to plan. Today, I dealt with the puck that came at me, and it was a message that came to me through Facebook Messenger from Patricia Casper. She asked me a question. Her question prompted a conversation, and that is the subject of this recording. I think you're going to really enjoy it. If you have a question for me that you'd like me to address on the show, or maybe just to you privately, or maybe it'll be the the inspiration for another episode, write to me at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com. I love getting emails from listeners and messages on, on Facebook. Uh, I respond to every single one. I'd love to hear from you. You guys just give me so much inspiration and energy to keep on doing what I'm doing. So if you, if there's even little a whisper that you think you want to write, please do. I'd be happy, happy to hear from you. So let's get back to today's episode. It's a wonderful conversation I had with Patricia Casper, a dedicated professional and passionate about improving outcomes for people with FASD and their families. Well, thank you so very much, Robbie, for inviting me to be on your show. It is an unexpected delight and privilege. I've been a fan of your podcast for quite some time. Thank I've you so much. Learned about it from our mutual friend, Natalie Vecchio. Always hearts out and, to Natalie. Love Natalie. Yes. yes. So I am, I'm just, um, really touched by your offer to interrupt your holiday weekend to record this conversation. So thank you. Well, yes. And let's just start with where it was. I was, you know, I'm having a nice lazy day. I'm on my deck with my coffee. I'm in my favorite place. I'm in my pajamas. It's 1230 in the afternoon and I'm having my first morning coffee. And Patty, you sent me a message yes. and it was Robbie. I'm, I'm writing this article. I'm trying to write an editorial. And, and you mentioned some stats about the cost of FASD. Yes. And, and that's really important work. And so I, I don't remember the stats to be honest, but I remember the researcher, Dr. Yeah. Popova, and she, she's a premier researcher, uh, in, in Canada with Canada FASD and, and the university she works for. And I'm sorry, I don't have all that in front of me, but I shot you those stats. And then yes. that led to a conversation about what's happening. And you told me about something that you're doing. And I thought, yeah. let's just have a fun conversation. So, yeah. yeah. So let's go back. There is significant cost to FASD in our um, economies, mm -hmm. in our family experiences, mm -hmm. in our social experiences, in criminal yes. justice, in education, in healthcare. I mean, FASD is just not a minor little thing that just affects right. some people. This is a global health issue. And I'm so glad to be talking to you during FASD Awareness Month and to just put this out there. So Patty, also, you're not a parent of somebody who has FASD, but you've been an adoption social worker and now you're doing some other uh, FASD education. Let's talk about right. that. Yeah. So I have been working in the field for more than 30 years. Before I moved to California, I was a therapist working um, with a adult mental health. I was a director of a psych unit. I worked as a therapist in a child and adolescent hospital. I briefly had my own private practice. I worked for a number of little nonprofit agencies. I did drug and alcohol work way back in the late 80s. <laughs> 
And um, my goodness, what we know then, what we knew right? then is so different than what we know now. I yes. studied to be a child yes. youth care worker in the late 80s yeah. and we didn't talk about the effect of trauma. No. We didn't know anything about intergenerational trauma. We didn't, we didn't even talk about FASD. And yet right. the clientele I would have been working with, probably 80% of them had FASD. And I've been working in foster care, uh, child welfare. Um, so I spent 20, almost 22 years with one agency and then uh, hopped over to another agency that really wanted me to be their trainer because I had done a neurobehavioral overview with them. And they were like, oh, we want more for our families. And um, their caseloads fell. I got laid off. And so my dream of opening my own business as a trainer got pushed up several months. I found my love for training at the at the sunset of my career. Um, once I moved into post-adoption work is when I began training. When I got laid off, moved that timetable up by a year. <laughs> so here we are. And that's what here it is. Are. And so you're writing this article and you're looking for just those stats. And so there you go. But then you're talking to me about, oh, you're going to be doing some training for parents here right away. You're doing a master class, you said, yes. which was fascinating to me. Um, and you're also, let me park that for a moment. So you're doing a master okay. class for parents. That's really important because when I was receiving my training from Donna DeBolt and about FASD, and she very much takes that neurobehavioral model. And mm-hmm. she herself is not a parent of people who have FASD, but she has been a, a social worker in private practice for many, many years at that time. She said the most protective factor for an individual who has FASD is a stable placement. So now in my case, that means my adoptive home. That isn't the case for everybody with FASD. So let's hear this parents, yeah. caregivers, um, social workers who are listening. The most protective factor for an individual who has FASD, has that prenatal alcohol exposure, is a stable placement. Now, what are the ingredients to a stable placement? It's a lot more than love. You know, I've written articles for magazines and, and different places to say, you know what, like what I knew as an adoptive parent and I came with all this love in my heart, it wasn't enough. In, in fact, if all I had was love in my heart, I wouldn't be able to sustain the parenting I'm doing. It's just so much more complicated than that. And there's heartbreak that goes with this journey. This masterclass is imperative to being a stable placement and and parenting the long journey. Because, you know, when you've got that cute little baby in your home, or as I did, that three-year-old that came with trauma and prenatal alcohol exposure, and you're loving and you're giving security and you're giving attachment the best you can, um, my friends, it's not going to be enough. You're going to burn out. And all your best intentions will not meet your kid where they really are and where they will be. And if we don't get this right, we do more harm than good. Yeah, And that's a big statement. It's a big statement, but it's true. We need training to understand fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You and I were talking about the importance of that uh, and getting after it as though we would if our kid had a medical diagnosis of diabetes. Mm -hmm. Like you were just teaching me. Isn't just these three magic things that, that we have to watch every day. That is my introduction to the concept of invisible disabilities is my type 1 diabetes, which I grew up with. I was diagnosed in 1965. I spent my second birthday in the hospital. Oh, my. I never considered it to be a disability until um, 11 years ago. We were camping and, you know, the as, as a type 1 diabetic, the, the last thing I do every night is check my sugar. And the first thing I do every morning is check my sugar. It's what we do. 
I was testing my sugar 20 times a day just to make sure I could stay in range. And I remember waking up and, you know, feeling the cool air coming in through the window and rolling over and grabbing it. And my sugar was 30, which in Canadian terms is 1.6, which, you know, is not life sustainable. (laughs) So while my husband was getting juice for me, I realized, you know, my sugar has dropped down this low more in the last six months than in the prior four decades combined. And that's when I decided I don't have enough tools to stay alive on my own. I need help. That is a definition of disability. And I just got chills when you said that. That is, just make that parallel to the individual who has Mm FASD. Do they have enough tools to sustain their life? With a high degree of quality, probably not. How about the parents? I was just speaking to to two individuals yesterday in, in an FASD support group who themselves have FASD and they're, they're angry and they're frustrated with their parents because they don't feel their parents are giving them the support they need. Um, and, and what I said to them, and, and, and maybe that's true. Um, and what I said to them is when your parents get received that diagnosis for you of FASD, they did not get training. And a huge difference. If we don't get training, we don't have the tools to sustain our family life. Right. Let's talk about this masterclass. So my masterclass really is geared for those people who have not found the support that they have been looking for. They have not felt the help, found the help that they've been looking for. They've been blamed and shamed by therapists school personnel, social workers, you're, you're disciplining too harshly, you're not disciplining at all, no matter, and they're desperate for help. And no matter where they're turning to, they're getting advice from people who have grown up looking at the old model of all behavior is intentional. All behavior is purposeful to gain a result or avoid a consequence, but we know that's not true. Neuroscience has proven that that is not true, but people are not making that switch. So I'm hoping to be a landing place in this masterclass for people to finally understand the reason why their kids' behavior is not changing, no matter what they've tried, mm-hmm. no matter what they're told to do, is because they're using that wrong lens. They're using the behavioral lens of all behavior is intentional and they're parenting in that way. And the schools are disciplining in that way. And the social workers are assuming that that's the problem. I can't tell you how many friends I have who have been diagnosed with Munchausen's by proxy because nobody believes that there's something physically wrong with their children. Because there doesn't appear to be something physically wrong, you know, and that exactly you can't see brain injury, you can't see PTSD, you can't see the sensory processing disorders, the language processing disorders, the slow cognitive pace, and yet all of and how about the arthritis and all the other comorbidities Mm -hmm. that go with FASD that impact somebody's energy, their memory, their ability to live up to these expectations that I said, I, I've been in California almost 24 years, right? In that time, I've, de- I've been a foster care social worker. I started writing home studies for prospective adoption 
um, maybe 18 years ago. I wish I knew then what I know now. Yeah, don't we I all? Have, I have, and then I switched over to post-adoption support about five years ago. And I have always spent way more time with my adoptive parents or prospective adoptive parents than most because I cannot interact with a family without teaching. Because knowledge is power. Right? When we know better, we can do better. I say that all the time because it's been my lived experience. When we know better, we can do better. Let's take a quick break. Hey, my name is Oscar and I'm the host of the Potter Discussion Podcast. The Potter Discussion is the ultimate Harry Potter podcast, discussing everything from Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the entire Wizarding World fandom. This isn't your everyday Harry Potter podcast, because we have regular in-depth discussions about obscure and fascinating topics. So if you enjoy in-depth character breakdowns, Harry Potter quizzes, and you're a Harry Potter super fan, this podcast is for you. Search for The Potter Discussion Podcast in your favorite podcast app, or click the link to learn more. So in the, the masterclass basically is just to help people understand why the traditional approaches are not working and then introduce, you know, a, an option for people to, you know, get a consultation with me. I will be launching next month my eight month coaching program. So I've been spending the summer building up for that. A lot of it is going to be neurobehaviorally informed, right? I am a certified facets neurobehavioral facilitator. Wonderful. But my coaching program is not purely facets. I'm also going to be doing deep dives into attachment and intergenerational trauma and parenting styles, right? Authoritarian versus authoritative versus neglectful versus permissive. I figure it'll be about eight months to get through all of that. And then the adoption issues that 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 will come in time. Well, and, not, and don't they, you know, when we enter right. it, like as an adoptive parent, I, like I said, I've got five children, four of whom are adopted, four of whom are adopted through the child welfare system. Yeah. Um, I thought love would be everything. You know, I went into it very naive. I was 19 when I decided, uh, because of an event I saw, I, I thought I could be a mom to somebody who doesn't have a mom. Mm -hmm. I could be a parent to somebody who doesn't have a parent. I never thought I'd change the world, I, you know, and I didn't have a savior complex, but I could be a mom to somebody who wouldn't have a mom. And you would change the world for that child. But those children changed the world for me. Yeah. I am who I am now because of my amazing children. Yeah. Just let's go down the adoption road for a moment. Sure. I didn't know how important family history is, mm -hmm. genetic connections, family ties. Even if the child had never lived with a parent, those family ties are so important. Yeah. Um, and the, and the power and the beauty of an open adoption. Um, mm -hmm. that's not something I wanted to do when I was a young woman and I uh, adopted my daughter when I was about 30 years old. I, I thought love would be everything. Love was going to be this big pink eraser that was going to erase all the history and I would get a do-over. I got a white slate. Uh, that didn't happen. 
That didn't happen. So she came to us at three and it was probably a year later when we had our first visit with her brothers who were also either in an adoptive placement or foster care. And it's snowy and it's winter and it's December. And we're driving up to a McDonald's playland where the kids are going to see each other. And we're driving in the parking lot and there's these two little boys standing with an adult by a car and they've got their furry hoods on in. And we drove past and she says, those are my brothers. She hadn't seen them in two years. She's four years old. That was an eye opener for me. And it was important. And so we continued visits with the brothers and we had a bond with the family. You know, what I learned in time is though my daughter had not lived with her brothers since she was only seven months old, she walked like them. She talked like Mm -hmm. them. She had the same sense of humor as them, the same funny smile. Now she's a parent and I see her brothers in her baby boy. But I've come to understand very deeply that our children are rooted in their family trees and grafted somewhat in ours. And and we get to come along. We come along. There's one of the most powerful movies that I saw that was part of, at one point, was part of the training at the first foster family agency I worked at, was a documentary of a woman somewhere in the Midwest of the U.S., she was part of a sibling set of four who was severely neglected. Like they were locked out of their home for weeks, lived in the crawl space under the house, dug out of trash cans for food. Back then, they were separated immediately one from another and adopted out never to see one another again. Unbeknownst to any of them, their parents went on and had another subset of four who were also went through that exact same experience. When one of them decided to search for siblings, they discovered there's eight. Oh my goodness. And she planned a reunion and it was attended by two siblings out of each set of four. Because some of the siblings were just overwhelmed by the prospect. Of course. Right? And too threatened by it. Of course. But the commonalities that they experienced were, um, it, it just was such a powerful video. And I can't think of the name of that documentary, but I have always played it for people that were like, oh no, I don't, I don't believe they should see their siblings. Oh yes, they should. Yeah. Let's talk to the biological families who are listening right now too. And let's just Mm -hmm. say, we love you and we respect you. And you know Mm -hmm. what? You didn't know what you didn't know. Maybe you didn't know you were pregnant. Maybe the doctor told you it's okay to have a glass of wine. You know, like, my God, you didn't know what you didn't know. And I know that you didn't intend to harm your child. Um, I'll I'll just put this out here, Robbie. And I've debated whether or not I was going to say it or not. When you took your facets training and worked through the exploration tool, do you remember your trainer saying you may recognize yourself or someone else as you complete this, even though you started this training with someone else in mind? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had that experience mm-hmm. because it was when I worked through that and did the draw your brain exercise, I turned around and did it with my mom. And my husband flippantly said as he passed through the room, oh, is that what's wrong with you? I don't know, honey. Mom, did you drink while you were pregnant with me? Oh, yeah, every day. In the 60s, everyone was told it's okay. 
everybody was told it's okay. Yeah. And it's and it's such a broad spectrum of effects. I was passionate about this even before I realized that I'm on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> even more so now, right? Now I can hold myself up as an example of there is hope. There are exceptions to those really scary predictions that you find in your Google search. Oh, do I yes. hate a Google search about FASD? It's so unreliable. Like, like watch me just get fired up right now. I'll do a Google search and I'll get something obscure from 1990 or 1998. And I'm like, come on, we, we have learned so we much more. So much more now. Or, or you Google and you get the picture of the brain. And I saw that on Facebook today. Somebody posted it. It was cringeworthy, but this mm-hmm. was what used to be in the, in the FASD training where you see a, a typical event brain. And an, an infant brain impacted by prenatal alcohol and it's shriveled and it's small. Mm-hmm. And what that image fails to tell you is that these are images of infants who died. And so the one who died with prenatal alcohol exposure had obviously severe, severe impact. And that is not necessarily representative of everybody who has right. FASD, right? right? You know, it is a spectrum. So you yourself have discovered yeah. like, oh, that's what's wrong with me, as the husband flippantly says. But right. maybe maybe that explains why y- you have memory challenges or maybe why... It, it explained my quirks. <laughs> I have quirks one. too, but we I know my mother... Do. We all do. Yeah, there was just zero exposure, but you know, like, why do I have a bad memory? Why do, why am I so impulsive? Why do I have ADHD? You know, and, but and but if you remember from the from the facets training, there are over fifty thousand teratogens, right? Over fifty thousand things that can affect the developing brain and body of a child in the womb. Right. Let's deal with it. And so I have quirks and pretty much I like most of my quirks. And so I just drag my family along with me with my <laughs> impulsivity and everything. And unfortunately, my husband's really calm. So he keeps me tethered. Like maybe like, have you thought about all And I'm like, no, it's all a great idea. Of course, I haven't thought about all of it. He's like, well, let's just sit and think about this for a moment. <laughs> Whatever. It's important to recognize, like if a person's FASD, we do need to recognize that um, because it validates their experience and it, and it goes, yes. hey, I'm not stupid. Um, I'm not weird. My brain works differently. And because I can say my brain works differently, I can give some grace to myself, change some expectations and also advocate now for myself. And that's why I think too, it's so important that we give our children the language. Some parents don't want to tell their children they have a diagnosis of FASD. Would you not tell your child that they have diabetes? Would you not tell your child that they have a peanut allergy? My God, of course you would, because you're not always there. It's that individual's experience. It's that child's brain. It's that child's body. They have a right to know why they experience life differently than other people and why they have to be careful and why they need extra help. But also, you know, your kids are only kids for a little while. They're in school. They have to advocate. They have to stand up and ask for help themselves with the teacher. They have to say, hey, I need help. My brain works differently than yours. It's my child's experience. They're going to live 80 years with this disability. They better understand Mm -hmm. it. They better know the tools they need and the the help that they need. So that's kind of what I hope to do in my coaching program. Um, The first month is just lay it up foundation that it is an invisible physical disability. And, And once we get that foundation laid, then it'll be working through facets exploration tool, each of the primary characteristics, 
you know, sitting down with them one by one. What is, what are those behavioral characteristics that you see in your child? Mm -hmm. And then continuing with that assessment through the second month and the third month, we'll work on identifying behavioral patterns, right? Doing not just what preceded it, what else was going on, but more detail around the environment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that people aren't used to considering, right? What, not just what's the behavior, but is that behavior reflective of the brain change or is that behavior reflective of a poor fit? Yeah. Because you'll do different things depending on which of those categories that, that, bad behavior falls into. Do you remember the facets training that you took? I remember my trainer, Nancy, saying, I want you this week to go around your house and just really listen, really listen. What do you hear? Well, I'm pretty obtuse. I don't really pay attention to all of those things, but wow. And so I asked my kids, well, what do you hear? And oh, yeah, like, yeah, I hear the fridge running and I hear this and I hear the bird pecking on the chimney and I hear the car revving outside and I hear your TV at night, mom. And I hear my brother stomping down the stairs. I'm thinking, yeah, those are just the normal rhythms of life. But no, it's it's disruptive. It's an assault to their senses. Yeah. And so what behaviors are going to result as a symptom? Yes. Not willful as a symptom of being overwhelmed. Right. Yeah, I know it's so your the the class that you're doing, the training, the the coaching you said you're doing, Mm -hmm. you said it's eight months. Are you running it like is it a is it a weekly? The the plan is to do weekly Zoom calls as a group and going over this more as a training, right? The Mm -hmm. the fourth month is going to be looking at trauma and the lack of felt safety and how to build up more felt safety in their home. Because it's when our kids feel safe that they're capable of growing and stretching and making progress, right? The fifth month, um, we're going to be looking at what the parents bring to the table, right? And FACETS does this also. Yeah. Um, looking at values, right? The, the shoulds behind our expectations. But I'm going to be taking it deeper than that mm-hmm. by looking at the intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. the intergenerational attachment pattern. And then in the in parenting styles, and why would even, do we do things the way that we do that? And our values and our belief yes. systems that inform all yes. of that. And, and even the belief system that, that I've really shifted in this last year as a parent, just as I can continue to evolve and grow my belief. And I didn't know this, but I believed subconsciously that as a parent, it was my job to have my kids on my team. They would be operating with my values, maybe with my personality, maybe with my interests where I thought they would go in life. You know, that's why I I didn't know that's what I was doing subconsciously. But as I had to really examine what are my attachment styles, what's my personality, obviously very outgoing and and exploratory. And my kids, some of them aren't and some of them are. And we were having clashes, values Mm -hmm. clashes over that. And and I had to realize, too, that my kids' brains work very differently and they have a different family history, a family personality personalities, family patterns of being, I learned that, gosh, I have to be on their team. Mm -hmm. And when I switched from trying to get my kids on my team to, hey, I'm actually on your team. And 
communicating that deliberately and out loud to them to create that felt safety. I didn't, wasn't using that word in my mind, but to say, I'm on your team. I see this is hard for you. I'm on your team. What do we need to do? Well, how can I be? Help me understand family life improved. Mm -hmm. Drastically. And I love what you're doing with this coaching and taking the facets model, that neurobehavioral model that is so important. Mm -hmm. And then also intergenerational trauma, value systems, personalities, parenting styles, also looking at our own triggers and our own traumas that maybe we're bringing. And I think too, as parents examining, what are our values as parents? Like, why did we become a parent intentionally or accidentally? If we were adoptive parent, what was our motivation in becoming an adoptive parent? Have we processed the grief? Perhaps if there was grief around not having a biological family, not, not, not coming to parenting as easily as it is for some. Then there's a huge part of it, whether or not you have a child biologically or through adoption or just through fostering, you still have dreams and wishes and thoughts about what that's going to look like and what the future is going to hold. And those wishes may not be anywhere close to realistic. And that stuff needs grief. And that's one of the four pillars of having that stable placement. I'm just going to come back to that again. And you're touching on all of it with your training. And I think that's just amazing. So it's training, 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 as Donna DeBolt says. And if you think you have enough training, that's a signal you don't have enough training. So you need more training. And then coaching. You need coaching because you need to be able to have that experience of somebody walking alongside you to put all Mm -hmm. this training into practicality. You know, in my rudimentary way of thinking, I would say this is putting the wheels on it. You know, we're going to make this thing go. Yeah, and that's what we're going to be doing in the sixth and seventh month in the coaching program is really walking arm in arm through that process of building accommodations Mm -hmm. for each parent that comes to the coaching program. It's one thing to attend to a training, and even if it's the 18-hour full facets training and getting the tools, it's another to have the time and the cheerleader helping you through building it. Yes. And the other parents training is so important, but some of the best learning you ever do is when you share with other parents and you learn from their mistakes and their wins and you share about your own mistakes and your own wins. And that's where, wow, you really get it ingrained in in your, and that's why they call us facilitators, not trainers. Yes. I love it. So, um, so the sixth and seventh month is about building that IEP, but not education, right? It's individualized environmental plan at home, at school, at work, out in the community. And then the last month, the eighth month is just putting it all together and looking at, looking with each parent at, here's the proof of how far you've come and building everybody up and letting them really soak in that empowerment. Dr. Jared Brown, when he's on the show with me, he talks about the importance of Mm self-efficacy. Oh, it's that big word. But feeling like you are capable, feeling like you are a good parent. And that took a long time for me to get there. You have a class set up for professionals. It's on, what is it? September 26th. Yes. My grandmother's birthday. Well, of course it is. (laughs) Wonderful. I signed up for that. And two days before mine. Oh, well, happy birthday in September. September 28th is your birthday. It is a big deal because of my diagnosis with diabetes. Second birthday in the hospital. And they told my parents that I would die by the age of eight. 
and I am about to turn 59. So I am thriving well past my best used by date. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about that. That's really important, but let's talk about that. There, there used to be a stat that would go around about people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder only living till they're 35 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like it was 34 years old, I think was a life expectancy. Not true. Yeah. Maybe statistically, um, and that's without a supportive environment. So that's, right. you know, that's like diabetes. The life expectancy of a person with diabetes is low if they don't have the attunement and the medical yes. care and all the various uh, supports in their environment yes. and in their medical system and their awareness of their disability. Yeah. That too has profound implications for life expectancy. Yeah. And that's another freaky correlation yeah. between these two invisible disabilities, because even, even now in, you know, 2000, in 2010s, 2020s, there are a whole lot of doctors and nurses who don't know diddly squat about type one diabetes, who assume that it's managed the same way as type two. It's not their different diseases. Okay. When I had my cancer surgery, I chose Cedar Sinai Hospital because of its reputation for type one. Mm. I wanted to go there because I trusted I'd be in good hands. I learned that the doctors who know a lot about type one work on the medical floors, not the surgical floors. I did not get the quality of care that I needed when it came to my diabetes. But the same thing is true with FASD. Mm -hmm. As parents, we turn to professionals, whether it be in county mental health or private therapy or social services or the developmental agencies expecting expert care, the same as I expected with my diabetes at with type one diabetes down at Cedars. But if those professionals have not learned the neurobehavioral model, if they have not learned that behaviors reflect brain function, they then they're not equipped provide our kids with FASD with the help that they need or the parents and or their families and support the families right Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. and it's not because it's not in their arrogance that they say it's your fault it's poor parenting it's because they just haven't learned it yet and we have to give professionals the same grace as we give each other as parents of kids on the spectrum None of us knew what we didn't know until we learned it. Very true. Very, very true. I was speaking with a doc. He's an ER doctor in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and he's actually the husband of my cousin. And we were chatting about fetal alcohol spectrum and we were talking about presentation in the emergency room and just lots of different things. And he said, Robbie, in medical school, we don't learn about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. We don't learn about the ravages of prenatal alcohol exposure. So that's physicians, uh, pediatricians. Yeah. I heard Dr. Mansfield Mella. He is a forensic psychiatrist. He works out of the University of Regina in Canada here. He was on Jeff Noble's podcast. He talked about himself as being a forensic psychiatrist with 14 years experience practicing before he even learned about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Isn't 14 years. Yeah. 
Yeah. Forensic psychiatry. What's he dealing with? People in the criminal justice system, people with a very complex presentation. And statistically, that's a high percentage of that particular client population that will be impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure. And yet that's his specialty and had no training. Yeah. When we get frustrated with our teachers and we do, or our social workers, because they don't understand, they're not meeting our kids where they're, where they're at. Mm -hmm. We have to, just like you said, have some grace and it's hard to sometimes, but to have some grace to go, you know what? They don't know what they don't know. But if we can come in with a little bit of information, not too much, and with a generous spirit and a kind heart, Mm -hmm. we might be able to plant some seeds that will grow. We might be able to to inform them. And it might be something as simple as sharing this podcast. It might be something as simple as finding a flyer online or a resource online, maybe your free training for the masterclass and saying, hey, I found this. Maybe you would like this for your professional development and send it to your social worker, send it to your pediatrician, send it to your teacher. Maybe they'll take it. I gave you the link for both of those trainings. Yeah. So the the training for parents is titled, What's Driving Your Child's Pesky Behavior? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) What's causing you to pull your hair out? (laughs) Yep. And the training for professionals is, um, it's just an overview of the NOR behavioral model. Two hours, right? That's a two hour training for professionals, but that's enough for them to spark some interest and maybe want to dig, dive deeper. Yes. I certainly will put those links in the show notes so that people can register. And, and I just want to say I was so interested that I registered for that uh, facets overview for the professionals because like I said, you can never get enough training. So right. And, and because there's so much information presented, it, it's kind of like when you open the Bible and read scripture, different things are going to jump out of you yeah. each time you open that book. Book hasn't changed, but I'm going to pull something new. Exactly. And and I'm going to be able to apply a different nugget. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. same thing is true with um, the facets training or Mm -hmm. any other training you can find for, for this issue. I might highlight something different than your previous trainer. Well, well, certainly because you also come with a different perspective. Nancy was a fantastic trainer and she comes at it from her professional experience, but also she is a birth mother of a child mm-hmm. with FASD. So talk yeah. about the experience she comes with in doing her training. And it was profound, yeah, but you're yeah. coming as a person who has 30 years of professional experience as a social worker, as a, as a therapist and your own experiences with trauma. Like it's going to be so yeah. informative. And, and too, when I do training, I'm pulling my lived experience along with my professional experience. So yes. yeah, I, I think it's yeah. going to be brilliant. So I was so yeah. happy that you reached out to me, to me today, just to say, you know, hey, Robbie, do you have this little bit of information and led to a little yes. bit of a conversation that led to this recording, you know, and then to have you on the show today, because what I said earlier is so true. You know, we are stronger together. Yes. This, this journey of trying to raise awareness about FASD, trying to change the world and form the world really of every person that FASD is not relegated to some minor people no. group. It's not relegated it's not. to alcoholics and it's not relegated to poor people or indigenous people like the stigma wants to tell us, but FASD is a worldwide health issue. It and is. I is. was shocked recently to learn when I spoke to the people from FASD Ireland, that Ireland has the third highest prevalence rate of FASD in the world. I didn't know that. Right. But studies there are saying 82% of pregnant women in Ireland consume alcohol during their pregnancy. Oh, Why? So scary. Because they don't know. 
Why? Because their doctors are telling them it's okay. Why? Because society is telling them it's okay. I'm not throwing any shame. I'm like, you don't know what you don't know. But there's some fantastic people in Ireland raising awareness. FASD Ireland is some. Uh, O'Shea's Brain Domain in Ireland is another. And I'm working with O'Shea's Brain Domain. I'm now Canada representative with them as well. I just love to connect with other people who are doing work in the FASD world, because I think as we link arms together, we can really create a movement and really we are stronger together. Yeah. So I, I just, I I intend to, I I don't know where God's going to lead this. I'd like to envision myself seven, eight years, 10 years from now, pulling off the road when it's time to get on the air and do a podcast or something from my RV. Yeah. Yeah, Why not? (laughs) that would that would be wonderful but i just i have such high hopes causing a lot of ripples in the water and you will yeah. like i had no idea you know when i started the podcast in march 2021 my heart was just jumping forward to say you know, if I could just speak to one parent, if I could just give some hope to one parent to say, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know the struggle is real and so is success. Here yeah. are some of the breadcrumbs that are going to lead you to success. And the yeah. first one is understanding FASD is a neurodevelopmental disability. Mm-hmm. The second one is we've got a parent to the brain. We have to understand that these behaviors are not willful or not motivated by something, but rather right. is a symptom of a brain injury. Right. And yet it's more than that. There's also the attachment. There's also the generational trauma. So when we know better, we can do better and we can really change our family lives. Does it mean it's smooth sailing? No. Like, can I tell you all the drama that happened in my house this week? Like it isn't smooth sailing, but I'm also not at the end of my rope because I understand where this is coming from and I understand how to navigate it because I learned how to not take it personally. Oh, Q-tip, q T-I-P. Quit taking it personally. Yes. Yes. But you know what? I have to say too, that God's given me the ability, the wisdom. And because, you know, the trials have been many. This has Mm -hmm. been a really long, hard journey, raising kids with FASD and having a daughter in addiction for over 10 years. I mean, that totally broke me, but, but God gave me the strength and God gave me the wisdom and God gave me the desire Mm -hmm. to, to learn and to grow and even to start this podcast. And I know I don't talk about my faith often on the podcast, but, um, but that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is because God prompted me to do this. And I had yeah. no idea, but you know, Patty, you're going to cause ripples. I, I get, yeah. le- I got, you reached out to me today. I get letters from, from parents and caregivers and like asking for advice or Robbie, thank you for this episode. Mm-hmm. It really touched me. Like that does my heart so good because yeah. you all, I'm a parent struggling too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when you reach out and say, Hey, Robbie, that piece really helped me. Or I learned that, like, thank you so much. Um, it's beautiful. But you, yeah. you just don't know where you're, what, you know, how the work you're called to do is going to impact people. So thank yeah. you for the work you're doing, Patty. Thank God that you got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> thank God you got laid off and you have a dream to be a full-time RVer. Yeah. And this kind of work is going to enable you to do that. But more than that, this work is going to save families. It's going to save marriages. It's going to save adoption yeah. breakdowns. Yeah. And that's a profound cost to FASD. That is seldom oh, recognized it's adoption it's breakdowns. Huge. Just the, the, you know, if the general population conservatively is at 20%. One in 20, one in, one in 20 people. So that's, that's 5% of the population. Mm -hmm. In in foster care and adoption, it's 8%. Yeah. Eight out of 10 kids impacted by an FASD. Now you add to that, that other prenatal exposure to other drugs. Yes. And to trauma before and following birth causes 
much of the same damage. It's it's nearly 100% of kids in the system have these neurobehavioral challenges. And parents are not equipped. So let's just talk about what are the, do you know the stats? I don't have them at the tip of my fingers, but what are the stats for adoption breakdown? Do you know? So I was just looking at that before we got geared up. Um, In California, it is 10% for younger kids and 25% for older kids. Of the adoptions breaking down. So that's, that's not, that's disruption and dissolution combined because once an adoption is finalized, it, you really, there's no concrete way to gather those stats. You know, it'd be fascinating to look at and and heartbreaking to see the rate of divorce as a result of parents not being equipped. Several of the parents that I have worked with have gone through divorce court. Oh, yeah. And without knowing, I can guarantee you it's because those children were not recognized to have a neurobehavioral condition. And so the stress in the family is so extreme and parents are not parenting on the same page. I mean, it's hard enough anyway for parents to parent on the same page. And then you're having a child that have these unrecognized disability and parents aren't on the same page. Family are on the same page. Yes. So foster and adoptive parents are all parents of children with these disabilities, these impacts, trauma, prenatal exposure to drugs, to alcohol, are all isolated to varying degrees because the the paradigm in our Western society is all behavior is intentional. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you dangle the right bribe or find the right thing to threaten, They'll choose what you what it is you want them to choose, but that's not true. <laughs> Reminds me of Dr. But, Ross Green's work, right? Kids will do well if they wanna is how he says it. Kids do well if they wanna. He goes, no, that's not true. Yeah. Kids do well if they can. That's the quote. Yeah. Kids do well if they can. Yes. What's the key? Is it that if you just do this, you get more TV time? Well, that might work in the short term, but it's not going to work in the long term if somebody doesn't have the the brain ability, the neurological ability to link cause and effect and to moderate their own behavior. That's the thing. Individuals with FASD, especially while they're young and and teenagers, they do not have the ability to regulate their own behaviors, to regulate their own emotions or, or to regulate the sensory stimuli that's coming at them. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're running on overwhelm, confusion and high levels of stress. If we listen to what Dr. Jared Brown talks about, about the damage to the HPA access, the individual's Mm -hmm. stress response system. Yeah. It's complicated and yet it's not rocket science. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, if you yeah, just... and if you look at some of the birth moms who, you know, are in dysfunctional relationships, maybe they're addicted, maybe they're not. But if we are in the throes of addiction, we take risky behaviors. Oh, gosh. We, yeah. we do risky things in order to get more of whatever it is that we we need to manage the stress in our lives. And with all that high risk is more stress. But what does that maternal stress do? It crosses the placenta and it affects the child's stress thermostat, damages their ability, their physical ability to manage those stress levels for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives. What happened to you has impacted who you are. All the stress, all the trauma, all the nurturing, everything, everything that's come in your life has has informed who you are. And we have to really take that approach when we're looking at our children, our foster kids, our adoptive kids, our biological kids, and and recognize, um, you know, when I became that foster parent, that adoptive parent, my love wasn't going to erase everything. 
It was going to be the glue that kept me engaged, yeah. but I had to do a lot of work and a lot of learning and learn to attune to my kids and recognize yeah, there were things so that, that happened. The glue didn't dissolve. And the glue didn't dissolve. <laughs> At days, it felt like it did. Before I understood, I didn't know the facets model. I didn't know about this brain. I can't take this anymore. Because show me a foster or adoptive parent who has been told prior to signing on the dotted line that these kids do not have the ability to understand the concept of personal property. Yeah. And ownership. Those are abstract concepts the things that our kids struggle so much with. Yeah. That are and abstract. Absolutely. And then I was, we're still in the framework of behavior is intentional and mm-hmm. we're assigning morality to it. And that's the other thing too, that yeah. when I, I was beginning to take some training and I'm still drowning because a little bit of training isn't enough and I'm still trying and drowning mm-hmm. and frustrated. And I, I wrote an email to Donna DeBolt and said like, well, they're stealing. Of course, was the words I was yeah. using. They're stealing. She phoned me up and like, stop moralizing it. This isn't a moral issue. Yeah. Oh, Oh, stealing, lying. That's not what's happening. They don't understand ownership. That's impulsivity. It's dismaturity. It's that's an interesting object. I want to take it. Sometimes I think it's souvenir collecting, quite honestly, making things up. Like that could be confabulation due to poor Mm -hmm. memory. It could be confabulation because I I heard something and I don't know that that isn't actually my memory. So it's going to come back out or they heard part of something and not the rest of it. And so, so it's not a moral issue. Right. It could have moral consequences, but it's not. I, I think one of my favorite lines from the training was about a, a parent who was working with one of the facets facilitators and, and said, I just want him to sit still for the hour that we're going to be eating at the table with his grandparents when they visit. And I bribed him. If you can just hold it together for this hour, I'll give you this, right? And of course it didn't happen. And the facilitator just started laughing. Yeah. It's like, would you tell your child, oh, just get up out of your wheelchair and walk for an hour. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Tell the blind child, just, just, just read, just read for an hour, you know, tell me, take away my glasses. You can do it if you try harder. Yeah. Take away my glasses and tell me to read and tell me to go drive. Tell me to go drive. And if you just squint and try really hard, you're going to be able to do it. Do you think that I might have a few behaviors? Do you you think if you push me to do something I can't do, I know I can't do. And I feel like a complete failure because I can't live up to your expectations. Mm -hmm. I'm either going to fight you, like I'm going to yell and cry and freak out, or I'm going to shrivel up and I'm going to become depressed and I'm going to withdraw. One of my friends in one of the dementia groups I'm part of um, said it so beautifully today that, you know, he don't don't assume that we're stupid, that we're not intelligent. It's all in there. It's just the pieces are scattered on the floors, on the floor of our brains. Mm, Perfect for FASD. Yeah, that's perfect. What a picture. Don't assume we're stupid. Sometimes the pieces are scattered on the floor of their brain. Yeah. Brilliant. Let's just leave that there. That's just a beautiful place to leave it. Thank you so much, Patty, for reaching out to me today. And oh. and that spontaneous reach out led to this wonderful conversation, uh, gave me some extra zest for life today. So I thank you for that. Yay. You're welcome, Robbie. Thanks for having me. And informing everybody this wonderful opportunity for some training and then some coaching. And that's what we all yeah. need. So thank you so yes. much. All right. And you can always direct people to my website too. 
We'll do. So, I'll put all those links in the yeah. show notes. And then if anybody emails me to inquire further, I'll just share the link. Awesome. If you can relate to what Patty said, if you're feeling burned out, if you're feeling like, gee, I just don't understand fetal alcohol spectrum enough. Um, I feel like there's more that I need to, to, to learn and to grow, to better meet my kids' needs. Hey, you're not alone. I was just like that. I think we're all like that. You know, when, when a parent receives that diagnosis for their kid that they have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, we're not given a manual. We're not given any training. My gosh, I'd like to change that. I wish I could do that training. But like I said, goalie rule. I, I can only deal with the puck that's in front of me and, and, and same for you. But what you can do is register for Patricia's course and her coaching model that's coming up very soon. She's going to be launching that later in September. And you can register and be a part of that so that you can learn and grow in your understanding of FASD and brain-based parenting and attachment and trauma-informed care. We need all of that, you guys. We need all of that to sustain our parenting journey, to be kind and understanding and compassionate for ourselves, our spouse, and our kids with FASD. So I encourage you to participate in that training. And if you're a professional and you're dealing with children in schools, in child welfare, in healthcare settings, in criminal justice settings, you know what? You're working with kids who have FASD, whether you know it or not. Promise you, the stats are one in 20 in the US. One in 20 people have FASD. And it's not a US problem. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a global health issue. So if you're a professional and you're working with people in these various systems, I promise you that you need to understand more about the neurobehavioral model. And that's what FACETS does. And that is the class that Patty is going to be offering on September 26th. I've registered for the class because I think you can never get enough training. And if you want to know more about neurobehavioral model, about the impact of prenatal alcohol exposure on the brain, trauma, I encourage you to participate in this class. Also follow this podcast because that's the model I follow is the neurobehavioral model, taking into account the impact of prenatal alcohol exposure, the impact of intergenerational trauma, maternal stress, maternal health, and the impact of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences on the developing brain. We need to know this stuff if we're raising children in foster care, through adoption, our own biological kids, if we're raising our grandkids because our kids aren't able to. We need to know, we need to be equipped because you know what, guys, when we know better, we can do better. Do you want to meet other parents raising children with FASD? Maybe grandparents who are raising kids with FASD? Well, I invite you to to subscribe to the FASD Family Life Community for only $20 a month. You will be invited to join our monthly online support group on Microsoft Teams. And our support group is a fun, lively place to connect with other parents who get it. And we have group members from around the world. So I encourage you to sign up today to be a part of our next meeting. We meet on the second Tuesday of every month with two meeting times so that you can pick the time that works best for your schedule. Our next meeting will be on Tuesday, September 13th at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. To register today, you sign up for the monthly subscription. There's a link in the in the show notes for you and you will be alerted and invited to our monthly meetings. And I look forward to seeing you there. Again, if you have questions or comments about this or other episodes of the FASD Family Life podcast, email fasdfamilylife at gmail.com. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that September 
is FASD Awareness Month. September 9th, the ninth day of the ninth month is the day that is set aside internationally for FASD awareness because FASD is a global health issue. If you want to participate in an awareness event in your community, I encourage you to do so. Wear your red t-shirts, wear your red shoes, get out there and raise awareness because FASD may be an invisible disability, but you and I can raise that awareness and make it visible to other people. One of the amazing events that's happening is RunFast, R-U-N-F-A-S-D 2022. The coach and the inspiration behind that event is Rebecca Tolu, and she is a dynamic woman who herself has FASD and she loves running. And so she combined these two to have this international campaign started last year with the very first one. And she's doing it again this year with her amazing sponsors, FASD United, FASD Hope Podcast and others. Run Fast D 2022 is a virtual event and it's a 5k. You can walk it, run it, roll it, dance it. Who cares? Do what works for you anytime from September 9th to September 25th. Register today or join a team and register. You can join the FASD Family Life team to participate in this virtual event. Take pictures of you with your family, with your friends, wearing your red shoes, wearing your red t-shirts, whatever it is you're doing to raise awareness for FASD. Do you live in Atlantic Canada? I just discovered that the FASD NL Network is encouraging folks to gather with them, to engage in their hashtag move for FASD event and enter to win one of five prepaid credit cards. You can check out that event in the link below and how to participate anywhere in Atlantic Canada. During the month of September, 2022, register online with a $5 donation or any amount of your choice and move, walk, roll, run, dance, bike, yoga, etc. Check it out, you guys. And how about New Brunswick? Fredericton FASD Support Group, led by Alicia Munn, is also hosting an event on Friday, September 9th as an FASD Awareness Day. They're going to be walking from City Hall to the Legislature Building on Queen Street on September 9th at 6.30 p.m. You can register for that event on the show notes below. And I would like to invite you to join me on September 24th for an FASD Awareness Walk in Edmonton, Alberta at 11 o'clock in the morning in front of City Hall. Grab your red shoes and walk with us to raise awareness for FASD. That's September 24th at 11 o'clock in the morning in front of the Edmonton City Hall. We're going to be walking to the legislature grounds and you can recognize us by our red shoes. We'd like to know how many people are going to join us. So I'm going to put a link into the show notes so you can register. We'd like to have some refreshments for you. This is an informal event. We want you there to help us raise awareness for FASD, get to know other people who are raising people with FASD or impacted by FASD, come and join us in Edmonton on September the 24th at 11 o'clock in the morning. Don't have red shoes? No problem. Wear a red t-shirt. Let's just get loud. Let's make some awareness. Let's, Let's make some noise and make this invisible disability visible in our community. Thank you for being with me today. I know that your time is precious and I appreciate that you spend your time with me. Until next week, remember the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.